Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Yeah, good, good, good. I am. Thanks for asking how I'm doing. No, man, I'm excited. I'm excited for lots of reasons, but I am excited because I'm, I'm looking forward to the Falcons win next Sunday. Can I get a rise up? Yeah, that's it, baby. That's all I'm telling you. Like, I'm not going to lie. So let me tell you my dream that I had. Literally, a week ago, Saturday, I had a dream the day before we played Green Bay. And in my dream, this is a true story, by the way, true story. In my dream, the Falcons are winning against Green Bay 44 to 28. Now, you know, this final score is 44-21, right? And in my dream... I'm getting a little nervous because, like, anything could happen. And in my dream, the Falcons on the 20-yard line, and and that play, I, I literally saw this dream, this play happen in my dream. I saw Julio Jones come across the middle of that screen, right? He catches the pass. In, this is a true story, by the way. He catches it in my dream. He stiff arms the guy in my dream, runs for a touchdown. And I, and I start cheering. I look over at Randall in my dream and go, it's our season. And then I woke up, right? So either I'm a, either I'm a prophet or you can stone me next Sunday. I'm not real sure, but uh, no, no, it's exciting stuff. Good time to be good time to be living in the state of Georgia. So, all right, well, let's dive in this morning. We're in a series called Family Resolutions, and and you all know that about resolutions. You you do them every year, and resolutions are this. I'm gonna put the just the definition up here on the screen so that you can see it, right? Firm decisions to do or not do something for the purpose of enhancing our lives. And so you know what, you know what those are. Every year, you get to the end of a year, look into the next year, and then you look at yourself like partially naked in the mirror going, I need to make a resolution right here, right? And so you make these decisions, whether it's to lose weight, whether it's to get into shape, whether it's to spend more time with your family, do something with your finances, whatever it may be, right? So we have these personal resolutions. And I'll just say, I'm a huge fan of those. I, I think that they're great. I think these decisions that we make are, are intentionally time you make these firm decisions to do or to not do something to enhance life is ultimately good, but family resolutions are different. We said two weeks ago that family resolutions are these resolutions that we make, like Paul made, where he said, I resolve to know nothing except Christ crucified among you. Remember, he was talking to the Corinthians. He says, man, I resolve to know nothing, I resolve to know nothing apart from Christ among you so that your faith would not rest on anything that I've said, but on the power of Christ. And so the idea was that he was looking at his spiritual family and he's looking at them going in, going, ah, oh, I don't want them to be focused on me. So he said, this is important. Family resolutions ultimately have Christ at the center of them and are focused on what is best for the people in our lives. Family resolutions, Christ at the center, for I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ crucified, Christ at the center, because I wanted everything in your life to be great and to focus on Jesus and not me. So family resolutions have in mind this idea of these firm decisions with Christ at the center about what's best for those that we're in relationship with. And so we said, honestly, for most of us, the context of our relationships revolve around maybe marriage or our children or for honest around our finances, because so much of our life is affected by the way finances are impacting our home. And so for the next ever how many weeks, I don't know exactly how long yet, but we'll figure out once we get there, right? Get to the end, how long it's going to be. That we're going to focus on these pieces. We're going to focus on these family resolutions, Christ-centered, about what's not best for me necessarily, but what is best for those in my marriage, with my children, in the context of my finances. Why? Because when I talk to people, the issues that they face that make life difficult, if they're honest, 
usually revolve around one of those three things. So what if we just take the beginning of the year and say, hey, let's take these three primary issues that we're all going to deal with. In some form or fashion, if you're not married, you're like, well, that doesn't really count. No, but you have primary relationships, don't you, that massively impact you, right? So the context of these priority relationships that we're in, let's resolve right now to be Christ-centered in each of them and to figure out what's in humility best for them and resolve to lead them to that. And so you're like, I don't want to lead my spouse because I don't like him right now, right? But that's the nature of it, isn't it? In the context of our marriages, I don't know if you know marriage is hard. It's hard. Like, I'm going to die every day in my marriage. I'm just kidding, right? It's a difficult thing that, God, God, I'm dying to self. I always said, when I had, when I got married, I realized how selfish I was. And then I had kids, right? And then I really realized it. That's the nature of it. Because let me just say this. If I have to, Romans 8, die on the altar every day to be in relationship with Jesus, then it's probably true for every relationship that I'm in. Urge you, brothers and sisters, view Christ's mercies to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's just a great lesson for every relationship that I'm in. That's family resolutions. So we're going to dive into this morning, this conversation, family resolutions in the area of our marriages. And I want to start by telling you two important stories that kind of defined my upbringing in the context of understanding marriages, in the context of my relationship between my mom and my dad, in the context of their marriage and relationship to me. Now, I I had great parents. They're imperfect, just like each of us are imperfect parents, right? But they loved me. I'll never forget one day, we're leaving the Kmart right there at at Shaliford Road. Road and Johnson's Ferry Road, and we're getting ready to go back to my house. And my dad looks at me and says, these are all both true stories. They really, really massively impacted me. He said, Steve, you know that I love you with everything inside of me, right? I said, yeah, dad, 12 years old, mind you. That's, I'm glad you know that. But let me tell you something you need to know, and I'm going to say this because I love you. I love you, but I love your mom more. And she is more important to me than you are. And I don't know about, I don't know if you were selfish at 12 years old, but I was, right? And the world somehow revolved around me, like literally everything. And my dad said that. And what did I have? I literally had this war inside my head for a couple seconds. I'm like, what do you mean? You love mom more than me. I mean, I mean, like, I'm your son. I'm your, I'm your only child. Are you kidding me? I was the only child, by the way, right? It's like, are you kidding me? It's like, ugh. And so, like, and I was like, oh, and, but man, I was also a Christian, and something over here, it had to be Jesus because I was not this smart, literally, said, no, that's a good thing. Like I knew, like my dad said, the greatest way that I can love you is by preferring your mom and making her the priority of my life and loving her more than I love you. Because if I do that, then your life will be much more healthy. And I remember I looked at him as a 12-year-old and I said, it's one of those moments, I, go, I get it, Dad. All right? I get it. It was the nature of like him showing this reality of priorities. It's like, listen, I was like next down here, like God, and then my mom, and then me. But he 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 preferred her. He fought for her. If I'm yelling at her, 
then he's not getting on my side and agreeing with me because he preferred me. No, he was always on my mom's side, even if he agreed with me. When I was 14, 15 years old, you all know that I'm a big bass fisherman. I got it from my dad. Okay, my dad's a massive bass fisherman. And so I'll never forget, 15 years old, we're at church, our church, it was Shaliford Road Baptist Church back in the day, right? We were the very first three members of the church, or the church plant over there in East Cobb. And never forget me, I'm sitting there on a Sunday morning, we're meeting in the auditorium at Pope High School, and my dad goes to the pastor. And he asked to speak. My dad was a deacon, so he had the right to do that, right? It wasn't weird. And kind of told him what was going on. He got up and he just said, I need to confess something before all of you. And my mom had no idea what was going on. I didn't either. And there's like, anytime someone says confess, you're like, oh, what are they going to say, right? Especially as the son, I'm like, oh, everybody's got all my friends are looking at me. I was sitting right over here, right? This area right here, okay? With all the youth. And they're kind of looking at me that nervous, like, what's he going to say? And my dad said this. He goes, I've realized the priorities of my life that something's been out of whack. He said, God is first, and my wife needs to be second, and I put bass fishing above all of them, so I've given it up to honor Jesus. And I went, crap. <laughs> right? <laughs> that was our thing, man. Like, we bass fish. Like, I'm like, I was like, does he really mean, like, right now? Because, like, spring? And, 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 and my dad looked, he goes, he just looked at me, because I'm sorry, Steve. Because God went first. My mom went second. Bass fishing was way down the line and had done this. You know, what he, you know what he made? A family resolution. Jesus is first. He's the center of everything. And I'm making a decision based on what is best for my relationship with God to prefer him. And what is best for my priorities, my wife. And my child on the line because my hobbies are last. And, and so literally for three to four years, he gave up bass fishing until it was no longer an idol. And every three months I go, Dad, can you fish yet? Can't steer, right? Okay. And I'd pray, God, help him, Lord, right? These are family resolutions that we make, right, to make preference Jesus first. And then the priorities of our life. We talked about the Shema. Remember from Deuteronomy chapter 6? I said it earlier. The Jewish faith, and Jewish faith literally every day, at least twice, but most of the time, three times a day. Every Jew, they would stop and they would stop what they were doing and they would get resolute and steadfast and focus on Father and say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We shall love him with all of our soul, heart, all of our soul, and all of our might. And every day they would do this for one simple reason. It was a way of remembering and restating and centering themselves on the fact that nothing that was shiny, nothing that glittered, nothing that their culture offered, nothing of bass fishing, nothing of any other hobby, no other God, millions of God that they would probably come across in their lifetime because of the culture they lived in. None of those things mattered because there was just one God. He was Lord. He was center. He ruled everything. And every day they would center themselves on the fact both when they went to bed 
bed probably sometime in the afternoon. And at the end of the day, God, our God, is Lord and he is one and there is no other. And he is central, right? We said last week there's an intentionality of centrality of Jesus in our lives. And they would pray it every day. Let me just be honest with you. Since I preached, every day I've been saying the Shema. I'm not Jewish, right? But I've taken what they gave me. It's God's. He gave it. Here's a gift to humanity. Because every day, things are going to be clamoring and for your attention. Everything's going to be screaming in your mind. Everything's going to be wooing you away from your first love. And so remember every day, here. I I pray like, oh, here, Steve, among the people. Here, oh, Israel. Listen, Steve, the Lord, your God is one. Every time something presents, every single time fear, anxiety, listen, every temptation that comes in my day, literally I pray it 15, 20 times a day. I'm literally doing this. I'm not just saying it to say, oh, right now, literally, because I'm in need. I'm in need. I need to remember the centrality of Jesus every day in my life. I'm being intentional in my centrality of Jesus. Because why? I want to live and be a good husband. I can't be a good husband without Jesus at the center. I can't be a good dad. And so every day I pray to center me, right? So this morning, remembering the centrality of Jesus, the idea he's first, right? And we want to make decisions of what's best, these resolutions. I want to begin with this question as we talk about marriage. Listen, let me just say this real quick. As we were praying this morning, I was praying with Barry. I want you to pay attention. This was a, this was a word I felt like God gave us this morning. We were praying this morning, and she shared just a, a story with me in the context of marriage that overwhelmed me in the moment. And I, and I just recognized God's timing for this. And so as we're praying, I sense God say, I just sense this in my spirit. I prayed it. I sense God say this. There are those this morning who have believed a lie, and it's caused them to lose hope in their marriage. Remind them I'm, I'm God. And I always have hope. Remember, God is intentional about marriage. It's one of the very first things he talked about. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at it here in a bit. It was so important. He literally began creation. He created. He looked at Adam said, man, this is not good for you to be alone, bro. Here she is. The stuff of your dreams. And he's like, oh, right? It was amazing. Also, they got married. It's like, oh, beautiful thing. And he was complete in the moment, right? God loves marriage. He fights for marriage. It's so intentional that in Mark chapter 10, when Jesus is asked about divorce, he just goes back to what God said in Genesis 2. It was that important. And then he added, because he was God, he said, and add to that whatever man puts together, whatever God puts together, don't let man separate. Even adding more weight to Genesis chapter 2. Oh, he's important. It's important. It's vital, right? And so in the context, marriage is huge. And here's the question to begin with as we talk about family resolutions around your marriage. Here's the question. It's on the screen. Who or what meets your deepest needs? Who or what? Because my dad, remember, it was kind of like a bass fishing thing. He's like, I, I wanted something to do. I wanted joy in life. I wanted satisfaction in life. I looked at bass fishing, right? Who or what meets your deepest needs? Every human being is made up of four basic emotional needs. Number one, these are on the screen too. Let's look up here. Number one, acceptance, knowing you were loved and needed by others. You have a basic emotional need of acceptance. You have a basic emotional need for identity. Knowing that you're significant. Someone thinks that you're significant. Your life has meaning. You're special, right? Not like, oh, you're special. I mean, like, really, you're special, right? Number three, 
a basic emotional need for security, knowing that we are protected and that we're provided for. Like, if you don't feel secure, you feel like you're just crumbling and falling away. The fourth basic emotional need is emotional need of purpose, knowing that your life actually matters, that there's reason for living. And so the tension that we face, right, in the context of our lives and looking at our lives is that so often we look in wrong places to have these basic emotional needs met. So we just say this, and let's leave it up here, like every human being looks somewhere to have these needs met. Now, we know because we're all good Christians that God's supposed to meet all of these But the problem is when God is not meeting them, we usually look to the thing or the person that we're most attached to. And for many of us, that's our spouse. We go looking for our spouse and we look to our spouse to to meet our emotional need of acceptance so that we'll know that we're loved and needed. Or we'll look to our spouse to meet our emotional need of identity. Hey, tell me I'm important. Tell me I'm special. Tell me I'm insignificant. We look to our spouse to meet the emotional need of security, to protect us and to provide for us. We look to our spouse to meet our emotional need of purpose, knowing our reason for living. Snapshot, have you ever been around somebody and like they're single? And like my buddy and I called it, we called it the plight of singleness back when we were in college, right? It's like what it felt like. And, and like, like on, on Monday, they're overwhelmed, they're depressed. Their life has no meaning. They feel like they have no purpose. Everything's overwhelming. And then Monday night, they meet him or her. And you talk to them on Tuesday morning, and life is perfect. That's a recipe for disaster. Because what they couldn't find over here, they all of a sudden found in a temporary sense in this person. And now they feel like they have acceptance, identity, security, and purpose. Now, you get it. It's like we have these longings that are placed there by God, and so find this relationship's healthy. But, but if all of a sudden we just shift all of our longings into being met by this person, recipe for disaster. Because why? No human being was ever designed to be able to meet all of our emotional needs. So this question of who or what meets our deepest need is vital this morning as we talk about family resolutions. Because if you're looking for your spouse or your important relationship that you're in to meet all of this, guess what happens? You're living frustrated because you're looking to someone else to meet something that only Jesus can. He's central. Intentionality of centrality, only he ultimately can meet all of these longings and needs of our hearts. And so it's a starting point, because if you're trying to create resolutions revolving around an unhealthy view of your spouse, then it's not going to happen. It's not going to succeed. It's just not going to work. We have to begin with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, is one in priority. He ultimately meets all of my basic needs. And that's where I start. And once that's set in stone, then I can look to my marriage and figure out how it's supposed to work best. I'll just go ahead and let you know a little secret. Marriage is not about having your needs met. It's about meeting the needs of somebody else. If you want a good biblical understanding of marriage, it's not about love. Marriage was never based on love. That's not a biblical concept. That's a concept of Hollywood. 
It's based on our commitment to a person to bring out the best in them. That's why God puts us in marriage. Not so they can make me happy, but so I can bring joy to them. It's a little secret. All right, so let's dive in real quick. We're going to look at the pillars of marriage this morning. We'll look at two this morning, then two again next week. I'll highlight these again next week. But primary first, two pillars of marriage, and then we'll look at some more next week. And we're going to begin, like I've already said, in Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25. Here it goes. You can turn your Bibles there if you want to. I'm reading from the, I think, English Standard Version. I can't remember. It says this. It's on the screen, though. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife. They become one flesh. This was my favorite verse before I was married. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That was my favorite verse. I'm not going to lie. It's kind of terrible. But I was like, I love that verse. God, let me have that. So I'm just being honest. My gosh, these holier nows, right? All right. The first pillar we see in these four, in these two verses, there's four pillars, the first two, is the pillar of priority. The pillar of priority. So, listen, this is not a foundation, this is a pillar built upon the foundation of who? Sunday school answer. Oh my gosh, Michael, say it louder. Thank you very much, okay? I heard him. Yeah, we built on the foundation of Jesus. He's our foundation. He's the center. Everything in our life revolves around him, including our marriage. He's the sun. Everything else orbits around him, right? So we create in our marriage then the pillar of priority, which says a man leaves his father and mother. Up to to this moment of marriage, the idea is clear. Parents are priority, especially in Jewish culture, patriarchal society. Listen, everybody's hanging out. Dad walks in and everyone, extended family, servants, mom, right, grandpa, everything, all of a sudden, excuse me, grandma turns right here to father. Every decision is based on the engagement with father. Because father's the center. Everything revolves around him, right? So it says when man, it says when, when husband, excuse me, uh, father, excuse me, excuse me, uh, Says when they leave, right? Man leaves father, mother, the man and the woman. They're both here, patriarchal. Here's dad. He's center. Everything revolves around him. Then God comes and speaks. Says, in marriage, you leave that. And in leaving that, it's making it clear that his priority not just shifts, but 100% changes. A man leaves his father and mother. The idea is the man leaves his former way of thinking, his former life, and he now starts a new one with a new priority. And in a very real sense, he's starting a new family, a separate family, right? Man and woman, new family. He leaves this. They're still important. He still honors, but this is his priority. It is her priority. She has to leave dad behind. Let me say this real quick. Listen, if it's, if it's husband or wife and you spend more time processing things with your mom or your dad than your spouse, you're in sin. You haven't left. You have to leave father and mother and make your spouse your priority. God designed marriage to operate as the second most important priority in life after our relationship to Jesus. We have alternate, listen, we have alternate priorities that we come up against every day, don't we? Like there are alternate priorities that that challenge our primary relationship with God. There are also alternate, alternate priorities that challenge our primary relationship with our spouse. Kids is one of those. Jobs is another huge one. Hobbies, like my dad, 
talking about. We have all of these alternate priorities that challenge us every day. Our primary relationship with Jesus and our priority relationship with our spouse. Think about this story, and I'm not trying to be cliche here or sexist, but just going to create this story. You got a mom who's at home, and primarily she's working with the kids, right? Husband goes to work, and you can you can just interchange this, right? You can have both parents going to work, whatever it happens, just whatever makes you happy. But but for the sake of story this morning, you've got husband goes to work, <clears throat> mom stays at home, right? And so husband goes off to work, and it's and, and and he's he's enjoying it, he's thriving, he's finding some identity in that, right? And he comes home, and and in his mind he's coming home to be with his family, but maybe he's a little bit colder than he was because he has a, he's a little distracted, right? A little distracted. So the wife's over here, mom's over here, and she has the kids, and 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 she's loving the kids, and husband's not necessarily giving her as much attention. So what she does, she just she alternates and puts her attention into her kids, right? And so so the husband becomes aware of that and goes, why is she preferring the kids over me, right? And so when he gets a little bit offended, and so he's like, well, I'll just, okay, it's fine. She's not giving, I'll just give more energy and time over here. So she, he begins, you know, opening up his texts and emails, and all of a sudden the you know, wife walks back. I was like, oh, there he goes, choosing work over me again, right? And, so they begin this, and all of a sudden she gets a little offended. She's like, well, I'm going to go spend more time with my kids. Then she goes back over here, hanging up. And then she, he, he comes and says, hey, let's make love tonight. She's like, uh-uh, right, because he hasn't been preferring her. And he's like, well, fine, then I'm rejected. So he just said, well, I'm going to start getting all my attention over here, right? His affections and his attentions are over here, and all all of a sudden now they've gone like this in a vicious cycle and somewhere down the line they say man we're just two ships passing in the night and then all of a sudden they begin to say i'm just not sure this is what i signed up for and all of a sudden get to the point of saying and they start throwing out the d word i don't mean dallas right country song and all of a sudden in the moment you see this vicious cycle of separation. Why? Because they've each stopped engaging the pillar of priority where their spouse is more important than anything else in their life. And here's the thing. Do you, like, in that story, because I mean, I'm telling the story you know. You know somebody like this right now. And what do you know? They each have their own points that they're Right? Right? Like, that's the tension. It's not like, oh, he's terrible. It's all the man's fault. No, I mean, there's a mutual reality. They both haven't fought for the pillar of pursuit in making each other the priority of their life. And they both have to own it. There's a book called The Leadership and Self-Deception, probably the most important leadership book you'll ever read, and it applies to every situation of life. And the whole purpose of the book is we don't blame others until, we don't blame others, we first begin by owning our own stuff. That's the nature of humility, isn't it? I'm not going to blame James, I'm not going to blame until, right? I'm not going to blame James, I'm going to sit there and go, okay, before I really dive into James, I'm going to look at me. You've heard that scripture, don't point the speck in someone else's eye, in James's eye, until I pull up the log from my own. I have a log, give a speck, you win, right? You're more holy. So, But you get the whole dynamic going down in the context of relationships, don't we? We have to own first. That's the nature of what we're getting at. Priority. Spouse first. I own my own stuff first. I don't blame. I own. Listen, I don't blame. I own. We have to get to this place of priorities. Here's a list of priorities that are pretty much right on of how our priority lists should look like. Let me say this real quick. You each should have a priority list. Like you need to be honest with yourself. So the priority list that we should be looking at in life is God, 
spouse, and children. You saw that in my dad's story. Then church family, number five, extended family slash friends. Now, you could debate on that one. I get it, okay, right? But those two are debatable. But in six and seven are like, then, then six, work and career comes six, and then hobbies come seventh. So the only two that are debatable, in my opinion, on this list are four and five. They can be interchangeable depending on where you are in life, how close you are to your family, all that kind of stuff, right? Because they may be Christians. So it's like a church family, Christian family, extended family thing going, I get it, whatever it is, right? See, this whole dynamic going down a priority list right here. And we should look at that and we should go, man, yes, my list is something like this. And what I would say is this. Every single person, listen, Every single, don't get distracted, every single person's preferred list looks like this. I wonder what your actual list looks like. You know the tension. You're not blind. There's an actual and a preferred. I've got buddies. I've got people who say, yeah, my family comes first. I'm like, no, he's not. Can I look at your life? You work 80 hours a week and you go home. So all you ever talk about and all you stress out about is all you think about is work. So work is way up here. No, no, I prefer my family. Bull honky. You don't. I mean, you gotta call BS on that. That's terrible, right? You gotta call it, because that's what it is! Preferred versus actual. How do we know what our actual is? What gets the best of your time? What gets the best of your time is an actual. Here's another question. This is harder. Especially for guys with work. Women with work. Responsibilities. What gets the majority of your emotional energy? Every day. Like, I know guys who come home at 5 o'clock, women who come home at 5 o'clock, and they get home, you know what they do? For the next three hours, they're literally like, look like this, like they're hanging with their kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, oh, yeah, 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 right? They're not there. Their emotional investment still at work with other things over here. What gets the best of your emotional energy? Like, God knows, right? He knows. You can't fool him. James could completely fool me on preferring Natalie and the kids. Now he does. That's why I'm picking on him. He does. You're a great husband and a great dad. I believe that with everything inside of me. Okay, good job. Now I'm looking at James and like I recognize, I think his is, is very close to this. Now he loves hobbies. He loves to play any sport underneath the sun and compete, right? So I don't know where that is exactly. Only he can define it, but, but it's like it's in there. And so, so in the context of his life, I would say his actual is pretty good, but do you know what your actual is? So here are two action points, two takeaway points. Listen, I need you to engage this week. And I'm saying, like, if you actually love your spouse, you'll do this. It's like that guilt right there, totally on purpose, okay? Number one, write down your actual priorities versus your preferred priorities. Write them down. Like, don't just, like, keep them up here because that's lazy. That's lazy. Write them down somewhere. Be honest about it. Take enough time to actually be honest. Second thing is realign actions to match priorities. What do I mean mean by that? It's real simple. Make sure what you say you actually back up with doing. Like my buddy who says, you have prefer my wife. I'm like, dude, you haven't been on a date night with her in six months. That is ridiculous. You You don't prefer her. You do here. You don't in actual. So the prefer, listen, in building this pillar of priority, begin by being honest. Begin by looking at this place. Because here's the thing. Do you want to have a healthy marriage? You have to begin by being honest. You can't be healthy if you're lying to yourself. You've been fed lies from the enemy. You believe them. Why? Because he fears your marriage. 
He knows that you're stronger together than you are apart. So he feeds you lies every day, and then you believe them, and you take them as your own thoughts. Mm, mm, I hate him. Number two. Pil- that was the enemy I hated, by the way, not you, okay? Pillar of pursuit, number two. Be united to his wife. That's what it says, right? The man shall leave father and mother and be united to his wife. My favorite, actually like the old KJV better, says, and they will cleave to his wife. Like, I had no idea what that word cleave meant. I like saying it. Doesn't mean meet cleavers and separating and pulling apart. No, to cleave is this idea of united. It's taken with the Hebrew word and the idea that means to stick, to cling, to join, or to adhere to our spouse, right? So united, be united means to stick to my wife. To cling to, or not like an annoyingly cling, I mean like to hold on to not let go, right? To join together, to adhere is where we get the word glue from. And I don't mean that really lame Elmer's white glue that we use in school because, because of whatever, right? Because we're afraid of glue. No, I'm talking like a, that super glue where you literally put your helmet on, you put it right here on your helmet, and you attach it to that beam, and you stand there and wiggle like this. Remember the commercial super glue? Like that's what it means, We're going to super glue ourselves to our spouse as an active activity of what I do every day of laying down myself. It's a living sacrifice to adhere myself to her. I mean, every day. Gluing myself, cleaving, being united. It means, this is on the screen, it means we pursue with great energy and cling to our spouse zealously. I mean, I love good adjectives, right? Pursue with great energy, cling to our spouse zealously, all these things, right? I just love, whatever those words, I don't know. Is that right, grammar? They adjectives, adverbs, I don't know. Perhaps there's more phrases, I have no idea, right? There's something. So the idea is we eat with energy and we cling zealously. I love those. That's terrible with grammar, guys. I'm just being honest with you, right? You can pray for me. I'm just kidding. Now, this idea of clinging, energy, cling zealously with great energy, what do these things speak of? Hear this. Intentionality and work. That's what it speaks to. It speaks to intentionality in work. The verse is not passive. So many of us treat our marriages, we treat our primary relationships like continental drift. Where we believe that just over time, without trying, two objects will unite and come together it doesn't work that way our marriages are not like continental drift one of the phrases that randall and i started several years ago talking about healthy relationships is this but healthy relationships require mutual pursuit mutual both of us together pursuing one another because if you if only one person is pursuing and we call that chasing and nobody likes chasing we like pursuing. We don't like chasing. I mean, people get tired in marriages because they're just like chasing and chasing and chasing. Think back at the beginning of your relationship. Think about the, the energy you put into wooing and winning your spouse. Guess what would have happened if you hadn't tried to woo and win your spouse? You wouldn't be married. You wouldn't be. doesn't matter how much chemistry you have. I mean, guys, if, if I if I'd shown up to to our date still in my bass fishing clothes, there'd have been fish slime all over my hands because I've been killing it that day, right? And then been all over my hands and showed up, right? And then gone in to be with her. That would not have expressed love to her like I was trying to pursue and win her. No, what did I do? I would take a shower. 
I would put on the outfit that accentuated the best parts of my muscles, right? I would do my hair. I would do my, I mean, you all do this, right? I would have done my hair in some fashion other than like, you know, hat head, right? I've done something in that. I, I, I would have, I would have looked for a, the best restaurant I could afford at the time, right? To go to, to let her know I cared, Right. I would have gotten there on time because I wanted to win her. And when I walked out the door, I would walk behind her to uh, walk front, open, walk behind, close. I would then kind of walk ahead of her real fast. Right. To open the car door to let her in because so she would know I was trying to win and to woo her. And I go back around. I sit in. I look at us. I'm just really glad you're here. And you know what I would have probably done? Washed my car and probably sprayed something in to make it smell better. I mean, something, right? Why? Because that's the nature of what you do when you pursue someone to win them. That's what you do. You think back to all the energy. Listen, marriage is about mutual pursuit, putting forth intentional energy to continually express love to our spouse as much today as when we first met and fell in love. The problem that every single one of us face, and you can like, Disguise it in different ways, but the problem is we just don't feel like pursuing because pursuit requires effort and it requires energy, and we just don't feel like it. And we don't feel like it for many reasons. One, we're too tired. Been a long day. We're too tired. It just requires too much energy or we're just too busy. My brain's on too many different things. I've got energies going all these different directions. I'm just too busy. Or, or maybe you say we've fallen out of love. Why? Because you have a vicious cycle going on. And the only reason you fall out of love is because you have a vicious cycle, usually birthed out of your own pride. Because if you cho- both chose humility and gave your life to pursuing joy for the other spouse, as John, is, uh, what his name John Piper talks about in, uh, whatever his book is called. I can't remember. What is it called? Hedonism, Christian hedonism? No, the purpose of God. What is it? Anyway, I can't remember. He has this great chapter. Sorry. He has this great chapter talking about marriage. He says, man, marriage is simple. You both spend the greatest amount of your energy and time bringing joy to your spouse. Mutual pursuit. And then that joy is expressed for both of you. That's the idea, right? Because we don't feel like it. And the part of it is we feel like we've fallen out of love or it feels pointless. Why? Because you've been chasing for so long. This is where the pillar of pursuit must be embraced. Regardless of how we feel, we can't let our emotions lead us to wrong decisions. Our work, faithful commitment to the pillar of pursuit will require intentionality, zealous energy. And we see it expressed by Jesus in the context of his relationship with the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And I want you to see this. Because it's really interesting in the Bible. You had a whole group of people who'd fallen out of love with Jesus. He comes in in verse 4 and 5. He says, he's talking about all these great things he actually appreciates about them in the context of their relationships. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first in our relationship. You've abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. He's giving a, a recipe and a, really a, an, an equation here of how we, how we re-engage a love that we've lost in the context of this relationship that we are in. So four different things, three different things here. Number one, we have to remember from where you have fallen, right? The idea is, it says, listen, just remember from where you were. You were up here. We were up here in our relationship. Remember. Don't remember the feeling. Feelings flee, right? 
Now, remember the effort and the energy and the commitment and the zealous energy that you gave towards the relationship, regardless of feeling. Remember the commitment. That's the nature of the word love here. First love is the word agape. It speaks to commitment, to do what is right for someone, regardless of the emotion. It's agape love. The type of love he's calling them back to. Not a feeling love, but a commitment to do what is right for someone else, regardless of emotion. He's not speaking about feelings. He's not talking about that honeymoon period that you had in the context of your marriage. He's saying, listen, remember the commitment that you had to literally die every day for our relationship, to make sure it was healthy and whole and pure and right and zealous with great energy. Remember the commitment, right? And the idea is this. If we wait for our emotion to wake up to go do something, guess what we'll do? Nothing. We were never, listen, we were never designed by God to respond to feeling and emotion. We were designed by God to respond to commitment that we make. And feelings and emotions will follow. But we have them in reverse. And that is not biblical. If you will commit to right action, to slowing down, to be with Jesus, to, to engage and embrace him. Guess what will happen? He will meet you. Scripture says, says, rise up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The nature of pursuit, right? We have to remember from where we've fallen, and we have to repent, it says. Repentance simply just means this. I was going the wrong direction. I recognize my error. I apologize, and I turn back around and sort of walk in the other direction. So remember where you fall and go back and go, oh, I'm not... I'm not in the commitment. I don't feel it. That's okay. I'm not going to feel it. I'm going to commit to move forward in this, to slow down, to make God, to make my spouse my priority. I'm going to do the things that I did at first, which is what it goes on. It says, number three, it says, do what you did at first. I love that. Don't wait for emotion to motivate you to action. It won't happen. Start expressing love in the context of what you know should be expressed. So let's just press pause because this is not rocket science. You say, how do I, how do I love my spouse? I go, you, you know. You know how to love your spouse. Like, you know what you're supposed to be doing. You know what you did at first that wooed her and won her. Right? It's not rocket science. I don't have to sit there and go, oh, my gosh, man. I don't know what to tell you to do. No, you've been married long enough. You know what excites her. You know what woos her. You know what wins her. Women, you know the same thing. You ain't stupid. You know what to do. You know what it looks like. If you need to, go read the book, Four Love Languages, and figure it out, right? But you know. You know. Do it. Do what you did at first. Why? And hear this. If you haven't heard anything I said today because I thought you thought it was really boring and got lost in the Falcons, right? Listen. I think this is on the screen. I can't remember. Never, ever stop winning your spouse. Everything be summed up in that. Never, ever, to the end of time, stop winning your spouse. It requires time. It requires energy. I know you don't feel like it because you have your own story in the context of your own vicious cycle that you found yourself in. And you're sitting here this morning going, I hope he's listening. Mm-hmm. He better be listening to this because he's talking, Steve's talking right to him. I should have told you all in the beginning. Listen for you. Your spouse wasn't here, right? 
You listen, here's the deal. You know what God told me last year with Randall? Stop trying to fix broken places and just love her. Because every spouse is aware of their spouse's broken places, right? And God never asked you, just never said, never committed to you to fix your spouse. He says, love her, love him. That's not your job. Whose job is it? It's God's job to convict. It's, it's really clear. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and of righteousness. It's simply ours to love God and love our neighbor. Who's your first neighbor? Your spouse. Don't fix them because they won't like it. Love them. Never stop wooing and winning your spouse. Everyone, never stop winning and wooing your spouse. You're like, blah, 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 whatever. No, seriously, never stop winning and wooing. Build upon the foundation of Jesus. Your spouse cannot meet all your expectations. God never intended it. Build a foundation. Jesus meets its centrality, intentionality of centrality of Jesus everywhere, right? Secondarily, I build these pillars. The first pillar is the pillar of priority, then the pillars of pursuit. I'm going to build these things. Let's pray. Harvest, you can come forward. Jesus. I'm thankful today that you love the marriages that you placed us in. How do we know if we married the right person? It's real simple, God. If we married them, we are. That's the right person for us. And your expression of marriage then in Genesis 1 and 2 was, hey, man, it's good for us to be together. You put us in those relations. You put Adam and Eve together. You formed and fashioned her for him and vice versa. She ultimately is the part of him that was missing. You had to pull it out. He's only complete again if you're putting them back together. She's not just his helper. She is his partner in every sense of the term. They are, we are partners, equals together, going after God and the centrality of Jesus and the purposes of the kingdom. We each have our different strengths, our different weaknesses. We complement one another. And I pray, Jesus, today, it's been a long, it's been the last 50 minutes talking about the second most vital relationship in all of humanity, marriages. And Father, we confess that we are really bad at them. God, all of us could just say in one degree, we just don't feel like it in certain areas. And so, Father, we're asking, Lord, that you would convict us this morning of this pillar of priority, Lord. You would awaken that reality inside of us. We would choose that. We'd be honest. We ask for grace, your help, your blessing today, God, to, be, to become good at the pillar of pursuit, to make our spouse our primary pursuit, and to not give up at ever winning and wooing and doing what we did at first, and then turning back and saying, God, we ask forgiveness and asking forgiveness from our spouse for not loving well, for turning away. And then, God, I pray you just give us the energy, give us the desire. God, I pray as we turn to you that your Holy Spirit would flow then and empower us to do what we did at first. Father, I, I know in the past year that we lost several marriages at Vintage. And honestly, God, I just confess that every single one of them broke me to the core of my being. 
pray for them. I pray for those going to walk through difficulty. I pray for those, God, who got caught in the vicious cycle, Lord, and was overwhelming, that they stepped out. I just pray grace upon them. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I release the guilt in Jesus' name. I pray for those today who feel hopeless. I just go back and say, God, you know my heart. I really mean there is no guilt and condemnation for those who are in Christ. I just pray, God, that you remove that spirit of guilt in Jesus' name right now off of people. Secondarily, I pray for those, God, who just like the end of their rope. Jesus, we hope and believe in Jesus. You're the only one, God. I pray today you would convict literally the hell out of people. The lies they believed in Jesus' name. And that you would give them hope that they would see Jesus high and exalted. They would know that he alone is Lord and that he can meet all their basic needs in Christ. Holy Spirit, come. Awaken them. I pray, God, a hope would arise in Jesus' name. Out of the, out of the ashes, the hope would arise in Jesus' name. Come, Lord. And pray for our marriages, Lord. Jesus, this only happens if you empower us towards it. We ask for your help today. We are officially done with the service. We're going to stay and worship for a while. If you need to go, I mean, y'all can jet. Have a great day. Just make sure that you do your action points. And don't forget your kids. It's pretty important. Offering baskets are right here. If you came this morning prepared to give, prepared to be obedient with at least that 10% to say, God, again, I don't want money to have an unhealthy place in my life. Tithing was created for that purpose so that money would never own us. And he says, here's my gift to you, a tithe, so that you would know that money can never hold you captive. When you give this morning as the Lord leads, there's a box right here and the door's out and there's a giving kiosk if you just hate doing that inside this building or in this room. Ministry teams, go ahead and come forward. They're available on both sides. What do they want to do? They just want to pray for you And every need that you have, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your children, whether it's your finances, whether it's your own physical healing, whatever it may be, they want to pray for you. And then then our communion. What is communion? It's just simply an expression of the good news of Jesus. He saw dying people in chains. He came and died, was resurrected to set them free. And we celebrate that. So you respond as the Lord leads today. You guys have a great week. Come back next week prepared to talk more about this. We love you guys.